Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue to work through the book of Philippians. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Holy Word, we pray that You would open it up in such a way that we would see it as just that. It is holy. It is different than anything else that we can come to, that we can read, that we can gain instruction from. These are not mere words, but these are the words of life spoken to us by God eternal. And these are words about us. These are words for us. And so Lord, we pray that You would use Your Word to change us so that we might bring You glory. You alone deserve glory in this earth. So Lord, as we read from the text today, we pray that You would use it again to bring glory to Your name. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen. As I studied from Philippians 2 in this particular passage, it made me think of you know, raising children and how you know, when you watch them and you even can, you can anticipate the times that they're getting ready to make a mistake, how, how a lot of times that is good for them. You know, it's, it's not to say that we don't, we're gonna let them hurt themselves or anything like that, nothing like that, but, you know, we should definitely let their feet touch the ground from time to time. What I mean by that is part of growing up is, is learning from your mistakes. I tell my kids that it's much better to Learn these things while you're at home, right? And under the safety and protection of my roof. Because one day you won't have those things and that you'll have to, to work these kinds of things out on your own. You need to know how to act wisely when that time comes and it comes quickly. In our text today, the Apostle Paul instructs the believers at the church there in Philippi to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And you've probably heard this verse before many times, and hopefully you've heard it taught correctly, because it has nothing to do with us for earning our salvation at all. But like children, we are to learn how we ought to act in a lost world and how we ought to obey God. While Jesus has met the requirements of the law, the law is still good for us. So as we move through this text, we'll look at that idea. We'll look at how some common, some common pitfalls for Christians that, that we fall into them is when it comes to working out our salvation. There's some very practical instructions for us as well, and they're rooted in some of the foundational stories of the Old Testament as we'll continually show, as God continually shows His covenant love for His people. And so as we move through the text, I want to consider three main ideas 
First, the believer's work. Secondly, the believer's witness. And then lastly, the believer's sacrifice. So with that, let's look together at the text. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So part of this text is we need to bring everything forward. We need to bring all of the work in chapter 1 and previous in chapter 2 and kind of bring it all forward into this passage. Paul explains that while he's gone, the Philippian church should be learning and growing in their faith. And his continued call for them is to have unity because the world is full of hardship. The church needs to be unified in order to thrive. The church is given a particular instruction to consider others as more significant than themselves. And they're given the example of Jesus so that they may see this lived out. And we see this in verses 5-11. through And in these verses 5-11, through we're given this, this great hymn of the faith concerning the doctrine of Christ for the church for all time. But it also presents Jesus as the ultimate example for our faith in this idea of considering others as more significant than yourself. We know that Jesus isn't merely our example, meaning that as Christians we aren't measured on how well we live up to Christ's example. Jesus wasn't just a good guy, but He is the one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is Lord. He is our brother, our friend, our comforter, but most importantly, He is our Lord. So with that context, our call to unity and obedience and adversity, Jesus being our prime example of that in verses 5-11, through we move to our call today to work out your own salvation. The The Scriptures don't switch gears here in Philippians 2 to a works-based system where believers are now expected to work their their faith out in that they have to earn their own righteousness. Rather, it is calling us to a life that shows that we are learning and changing according to the power that is at work in us. Watching my kids grow up and making good decisions is evidence that they've been shown how they ought to act and how and taught how to think about the world around them. It doesn't mean that they won't make mistakes. As we move into this passage, that is important because while the Christian is called to perfect obedience of the law, we rest upon the obedience of Christ for our righteous standing before God. That does not, however, negate the call to figure this out for ourselves. 
And that brings us to the first point, the believer's work. Look with me again at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice first the Philippian church has always obeyed. I take this to mean that no group is perfect, but Paul sees them as a well-behaved bunch. It's a good church because they are well-behaved doesn't mean that they should begin letting their guard down in any sense. Even the best group of people can become the worst in a very short amount of time. So the call here is to kind of double down on those things they've been taught. In Paul's absence, they should work on them all to more, all the more. They are called to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And there's quite a bit to unpack here in this verse. We could probably spend all of our time here on this. First, I need to say this again to make sure that we understand it. The idea of being asked to work out our salvation here does not negate the righteousness of Christ in our lives. It doesn't add to it. It doesn't put our own righteousness alongside His. It's just a call for us to figure out our salvation or not to simply rest on the truth of it, but to work it out, to understand it. Jesus was obedient even to the point of death and His obedience purchased for us salvation once and for all. It is finished, He said. But the moral law is still here. We just got through reciting the Tenth Commandment. It is still good for us to not covet, for instance. These words that we should not murder and should not steal haven't stopped. Even with Jesus obeying them perfectly, we ought to obey them today still. In fact, it's His obedience, or in His obedience, He has given us the ability to obey these commandments well. Ephesians 2.10, I quote all the time, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. In Christ, we should be doing good. It is a work that we should 100% commit ourselves to as Christians, not earning our salvation, but working it out. Working out one's salvation more and more acting is acting as if that salvation has actually occurred. The unbeliever will eventually show themselves to be an unbeliever. But so will a believer show themselves to be a believer. Believers don't have perfect obedience, but their lives should be lives of obedience. Lives that are working out this obedience actively Not to earn Christ's righteousness, but to demonstrate that you do indeed have it. And this is something that we should do with fear and trembling, as we are instructed here. The alternative is when we come at obedience with anxiety and worry. When we worry that we aren't quite obedient enough. It's when we have, is that, that at that moment we set aside fear and trembling, And we've picked up a works-based righteousness in its place. Concerned that we have to be good enough and be right enough for God and then worrying about whether or not that's true. Any worry that you have that you aren't good enough when you compare yourself to other Christians 
has nothing to do with Jesus. It has only to do with your own insecurities in the faith. Fear and trembling means going to Jesus rightly as the one to whom every knee bows, every tongue confesses, yet also realizing that He has obeyed enough for you. Now it is for you to work out your salvation, to figure out obedience, to learn more and more of God's law and what He requires of you. Not so that you can earn more of His love. Again, don't read this thinking, well, now I have to get to the real work of Christianity and earn God's favor. That has already happened. He can't possibly love you more than He loves you right now. He can't do it. He loves His only begotten Son and He gave His only begotten Son for you. He can't love you more than that. And that's why verse 13 is so important for us. Because it reminds us that we are not alone in this task. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Just as our salvation was purchased for us, our sanctification isn't entirely dependent on us either. God works in you both to will and to work. He works in you to will, meaning according to His will, you you are going to grow. You are going to become more like Jesus. That is going to happen necessarily in the life of a believer. It also means that God is working in you to give you a willingness to do what is pleasing to Him. We learned this back in chapter 1, verse 6, that the work that He began in us, He will see to completion. He is working on our desires so that we might desire more and more to serve Him. This is why it's funny that anyone would come to this passage and think, see, we work our salvation here. That's not at all what's going on. It is the work of man that God uses in order to accomplish their salve or their sanctification. Just like God doesn't need us to preach the gospel in order to save sinners, he doesn't need us to pray in order to change the world. He doesn't need the sinner in order to affect the sinner's sanctification. But he uses them anyway. We are charged with bringing about our own sanctification and it is happening to us through the work of God. Christians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is a command for us. In the next few verses, we are given a way to do that. That brings us to the next point, the believer's witness. Look at me at verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This might be one of the hardest verses in the Bible when it comes to obedience, at least for me. Grumbling and disputing go hand in hand. The word disputing here is where we get our English word dialogue from. But this isn't a dialogue in the sense of a productive kind of conversation, right? Normally when we use the word in our language, we think of like a productive conversation. This is, this is the kind of conversation that happens when you ask one of your children to do something and they try to explain to you why you should have asked them in a different way or why what, what you asked them to do isn't really right or you know, you know that you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
that that kind of dialogue. That's what's being talked about here. Grumbling is pretty much the same thing. In John chapter 6, when Jesus explained Himself as the bread that came down from heaven. You remember He feed all those people and then they came back across and they're wanting more food. And Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven that came down from heaven. And what does it immediately say that the people did? They grumbled. That was the word. What is this kind of grumbling? It's unbelief. It's not trusting the one in authority to know what He's talking about without being questioned. It is doubting because of a lack of understanding rather than just accepting the truth because the Lord of glory said so. This is the way of the world. Always needing an explanation. For me, I regularly grumble in my work. Just to give you an example, regularly. Why are we doing things this way? Or, this is the dumbest way to do this I could ever think of. It's so inefficient. And I sound kind of smart saying those things. I sound like I have solutions. But in the end, I'm just grumbling. I'm against the authority. I'm doing something that I ought not do. It would be okay if I was in charge maybe or had the power to change things, but I don't. And so I grumble. And rather than shine as lights in the world which we are caused to do, I am often the one that can suck all the light out of a room. This one hit me really hard as I studied through this this time. I've grown up knowing this verse. I've known my whole Christian life in particular this verse. It's very plain, right? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Yet I've never really followed it because I tend to think my complaining is always justified. Yet our Lord went to the cross without complaining. And if any grumbling and complaining could ever be justified, it would have been His, but yet He was silent before His murderers. And this one should hit hard for us because we're all students of the Old Testament around here. We've studied the Old Testament a lot and we know what Israel did in the wilderness. What did they do? They grumbled and complained. It wasn't shocking to Jesus that the people He had just fed would grumble at something that He said because the people He fed in the wilderness grumbled at what He had just said. They had just seen the Red Sea split and they walked through on dry land. They watched their slavers drown under the power of Almighty God and they get to the other side and they complain that they don't have enough meat and that if they could just go back to Egypt, then they would finally be able to eat good. They were happy for God to crush Egypt's army, but they didn't believe that He could take care of them beyond that. Grumbling and complaining, brothers and sisters in Christ, are unbelief. They are a mark of the lost world. And Paul is sure to make sure that they know that by doing these things, they will stand out. Or by not doing these things, they will stand out. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
course, the opposite of these things is holding fast to God's Word, right? Is is belief. That's what you see in 16. Holding fast to the Word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain and labor in vain. God's Word is true and it cuts through our circumstances to remind us that our true status is the children of God. Maybe those who have... Nothing can complain, but in Christ, we literally have everything. You cannot add anything to a child of God of any substance. They have everything. And we still complain that maybe He could just give us a little bit more. If we of the church of Philippi thought for a second that we could complain, Paul reminds us of our own status. And then he reminds us that through sacrifice that Jesus is represented most. And that brings us to the third point, the believer's sacrifice. Look with me at verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul knew that his life was one that would eventually lead to his death. He knew that the type of lifestyle that he led preaching the way that he preached and being around the people that he was around was eventually going to lead to his death. He was making many enemies along the way, particularly his own people, the Jewish people, and it would eventually catch up to him, and he knew this. I don't think that we can read in this passage that Paul thought his death was going to be soon here, necessarily. He knew it was going to happen, and that it could happen any time. And while he wasn't running toward his death, remember again, he thought that he was going to live and that living was the best thing for him at this point. That he welcomed it all the same. He welcomed this death because he said to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He compared his death to being poured out like a drink offering with this idea being that when a drink offering is made, every drop of the cup is spent. The priest would be careful that every single drop of the cup was emptied upon the altar. To offer something to a deity or, or to God Himself as a drink offering would have been to, to take any of it back for yourself would have been wrong. And so they literally poured every single drop out. So Paul's saying to be that being poured out like a drink offering, he is saying that he is offering his whole self. That he's leaving nothing at all. This offering is being poured out upon the gift of the Philippian faith. What they had done for Paul's ministry, he was continually grateful for, and now the Lord would use it to see the gospel go to the uttermost parts of the world. This goes back to what we've already said about suffering in this book, that while, or that just like our faith, suffering has been granted to us by God so that we would suffer like Jesus did. Not to the same degree, of course, but suffer nonetheless. Why? So that the name of Christ would be glorified and praised. That's why Paul can say this of them at the end. Likewise, verse 18, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He is being poured out or His being poured out should be normal for the Christian experience. That we would give of ourselves. That we would sacrifice 
of ourselves. That we would consider others as more significant than ourselves. Looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others also. We've already received that instruction. This is just kind of adding to that. Jesus did this by giving His life for His people. Paul was doing this in his ministry that God had called him to. And so the question for us is, what about us? Are we willing to do this as long as it suits us? And at that point that it no longer suits us, is that when we begin grumbling and complaining? Maybe we are willing to give of our excess. And I'm not talking about money, really. It could be money if that's, if that's your vice. But it's really anything that we hold on to. Our time, our gifts, our service to others. Are you willing to do these things up into the end of ourselves? To be poured out like a drink offering to the last drop so that God would be glorified? This is a hard question. I realize that. I don't mean it to be a guilt-trippy kind of thing. Because we are all called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Part of our growth as Christians is figuring out what this means. How am I to offer myself in this way? Every, every one of us is called to a different kind of ministry within the home or the workplace, the church or outside the church. Everyone is given different gifts from the Lord to us toward His service. But one thing we aren't called to do is to serve Him only when it's convenient. To serve Him when it's easiest for us. We are called to serve Him. Period. And sometimes it will be a great joy. Other times it will be a great burden. But serve Him. We must. And if you're here as an unbeliever, understand this idea of serving the Lord is hard because as an unbeliever, according to the Scriptures, you've only ever served yourself. Even when you served others, ultimately it points back to you because without faith, without faith in Jesus, you cannot please God. In fact, outside of Jesus, God the Father has eternal displeasure for you. So for you, the unbeliever, call upon the name of Jesus Christ today and be saved. Receive the righteousness of Christ for no price and serve Him today. But for Christians here, we are called to work out our salvation. This thing that we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In doing so, we are to do this work without grumbling or complaining. Rather, we are to believe what He says is true. Let us seek out how we can serve God better so that His church will be built up and so that the name of Jesus Christ will be glorified. Let's go to Him in prayer.